make sure I'm turned on this time. <clears throat> okay. This morning I'd like to, on behalf of the uh, Pastor Search Committee, to let you know that they m- we met on Thursday for a couple hours, a little over, and uh, we'll be meeting on a regular basis and communicating with you what's going on. The committee is a, is a servant of the church in the search of a pastor, and we want you to be a part of the process and be informed as we go along. So you'll be getting announcements, you'll be getting words. We elected uh, Hoyt Bradley to be our chairman to make the meetings work and make sure we all get there. And everyone was there, and it's a good group of people. So, But what we need more than anything right now is a challenge for you to pray for the personnel commi- the, the pastor search committee and begin praying about the one God is preparing to be our pastor. So prayer is huge. We need to be all together in it. We need to seek God's leadership, and we want God to choose our next pastor. So the way that happens is we talk to him about it. So help us with that. That's uh, something we, we'd love to have as your prayer support as we work to help you discover that person. Uh, I'm glad to be back. I, I've been gone for three weeks. Anybody notice? Oh, good. Okay. Uh, this is, I go to the early service. They all knew, but I, I didn't know if anybody here knew I was gone. But uh, had a real privilege. Our youngest son, Mark, uh, was installed as the senior pastor of church in Beaumont, a fellowship in the past. And uh, he'd been serving now for a couple years as the associate. And so we got to go down there. And what was really a joy to me was our son from uh, New York, who's a worship leader in a church in Schenectady, New York, flew out to be there. Uh, my other son, who's in the Higher Patrol, him and his family were there, and I was able to be there. It's a, it's a really joy as a father to see your son uh, be involved in the ministry and be uh, challenged, as he was, by his pastor from Wisconsin, where he had been uh, had a mentor. It was a joy to be there. And then we stayed a little longer and watched our uh, three grandsons from uh, my middle son's family uh, for six days while they were in Mexico. And they are five, eight, and 11. Yeah. Praise the Lord. <coughs> I did make it. I'm here. <laughs> but uh, we raised three boys, but obviously we were younger back in those days. <laughs> so, but we're glad to be here in a very quiet house. So anyway, I want to share with you a story about uh, my childhood as a, as a young boy between about six and ten, my dad and I used to go hunting. And I was probably about six at this that this took, occurred. We were going hunting over in the Trinity Alps, and uh, back in those days we didn't have all these fancy walking shoes, and, and we just had boots and, ten, and regular shoes. So I had regular uh, leather shoes for school walking these hills. And we started going up mountain in the Trinity Alps, and uh, I was walking, trying to keep up with Dad, slipping and sliding and, and all over the hillside, making a lot of racket, but... Uh, I could look up the, the hills that rose, that up at the top I was looking forward to getting there because it was getting a little tiring as we climbed that hill. And I thought once we got up there, we'd be able to see all over and see the deer we were looking for and have a rest. And so we got up to the top, and to my surprise, it wasn't the top. So I looked, and just a little ways is level, and then there was another slope. And so we took a little break, but then started on the other slope. And so I kept working my way up there and getting tired and sliding around. And we get to the top, and it wasn't the top. There was another slope ahead of it. So we went on like that most of the day. 
And I don't know if we ever got to the top. I can't remember. But I was always anticipating that we were always moving and finding another mountain to climb. Well, I want to talk to you today a little bit about uh, walking in with the Lord. I started in 1959, and that's when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and invited him into my life to lead me. And, uh, and it's been a, a, a long life. I mean, a, yeah, yeah, it is a long life. I've been around a while. Uh, not a lot, like a lot of folks, I had no idea what my new life was going to be like as a Christian when I accepted Christ as a nine-year-old. I think a lot of people think that being saved is just getting a ticket on an escalator to heaven. You know, it's all taken care of. You just roll with it, and you don't have any climbing or any, any challenges. But I have learned over the years that becoming a Christian and walking with the Lord is a lifetime adventure. In that adventure, God challenges us with many peaks and valleys to, to help us to become more like his son and to grow in our, in our relationship to him and in our ability to serve him. So there's a lot of challenges, and this morning I want to go to the scripture and, and, and talk and learn from it how we might handle these challenge, challenges. Now, I don't know what your challenge is as you're going along in your Christian journey. It could be a challenge at school. It could be employment. It could be a challenge about your finances. It could be challenges in your marriage. It could be challenges in your parenting or grandparenting, in your Christian service, in your empty nest or your retirement or your loss of health. The applications of our Christian life to these challenges require a lot of growth and learning to trust in the Lord. But life does not stand still, I can assure you of that. And I'm sure you know that. It keeps moving, keeps changing, it keeps, and there's a demand and a need to grow. And our spiritual life and the life of our church does not stay stagnant or, or, or it doesn't stay the same. If you're not growing, you're, you're falling, you're going backwards. And you're always having the challenges and change comes and faith is required. There's a lot of things necessary for a healthy Christian life in church. So I'm going to look at God's people this morning the Israelites, and watch them as they faced a great challenge as a nation and then learn something about how we can handle life in God's way and the challenges he had. So I want you to use your Bibles this morning. I am, it's not that I'm technologically challenged. I'm just kind of lazy. Well, actually, I'm both. But you're going to use the old-fashioned Bible, so go ahead and, and get one off the front. We're going to use it quite a bit, so you might want to read along. I'll be reading from the New International Version. But before we, you want to took, go to the book of Exodus, that's where we'll be in chapter 14. But uh, before we get there, I need to catch you up a little bit on quite a bit of a background for this, for this scripture. It, Jacob and his 12 sons, one of them was Joseph. And remember that Joseph had some, some dreams and caused some jealousy with his brothers and he was sold into slavery and ended up Long story short, moving to the second command in Egypt during a time of famine. During that time, Joseph was able to go bring his father and his brothers and their families to, to Egypt and took care of them, and they were to receive land and the Pharaoh's favor. And uh, so he, he had 70 people in his family at that time. It's a pretty good-sized family. And uh, they settled there. And then they did well and prospered and had a favored status with the Pharaoh, but Eventually, a new pharaoh arrived who didn't have any allegiance and memory of what Joseph had done to serve the Egyptian nation and had no favoritism towards the Jews. And, the, and, the, and, God, and Joseph's family, Jacob's family, the 12 sons, had, had grown greatly. 400 years, they had gotten to over 2 million people. 
and that became a little bit of a threat to the Pharaoh. All these people in his group here, if, if enemies would come, maybe they would join forces with them and be a danger to us. And he began to think he needed to get a control of these people. So the Pharaoh decided to make them slaves and began using them for some of his building projects and began to oppress them. And that was not a real good idea because it turned out that as they cried out in their oppression, God heard them and he began to move to rescue his people. Through a ser series of miraculous events, God preserved a Hebrew boy named Moses who became a prince in Pharaoh's palace and then an outcast in a desert land. After 40 years of exile, God visited Moses in the mysterious flames of a burning bush. And after some discussion, you might call it a somewhat of an argument, uh, Moses agreed to return to Egypt to lead God's people out of slavery. Pharaoh was confronted, and through a cycle of plagues and promises made and broken, Israel was freed from, from the Pharaoh's grasp. It was no easy task to mobilize this mass of humanity. But they marched out of Egypt and set out on their journey to a new land that God had promised their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So let's pick up the story there. Now, if you have any holes in this story, just go watch the Ten Commandments. It'll help you catch up on all this stuff. <clears throat> so I know you got some background. All right, Exodus chapter 13, starting with the 17th verse. <clears throat> now, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter, for God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear on an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel both day and night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in the front of the people. Then in chapter 14, then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Piharoth between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready, took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officer, officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Hirath, opposite Baal-Sephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord, they said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. 
it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Well, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Or as the Living Bible says, forward march. Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for the things we learn from your dealings with your people, with individuals within each of these groups. We thank you, Lord, for your love and we pray that you will guide us, draw us close to you and help us to see that which you want us to see in this, in this scripture. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the newly freed slaves would soon become a great nation led by God to fulfill the promise made to Abraham 700 years before, but not without a lot of steps in between. I'd like for you to look at a few things in the scripture that I read. First, in, uh, I want you to notice who put the Israelites into this first challenge as his people. Who put the Israelite nation in this precarious situation that they're in between the devil and the deep blue sea? It was God that put them there. He made it very clear. God was leading them, and they had learned already that God's presence was with them and guiding them, and they followed him. And that pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day always was in front of the people. And that's a huge mass of people. But they were able to see that God was present and see where he was leading them. They followed it. He was always out front. And so God was leading them, and he, he kind of conned the Pharaoh into believing they were confused and, and didn't know what they were doing. But God knew what he was doing as he moved them around in kind of a, a, a wandering pattern until he placed them in a very untenable position. Best I can understand, you know, they, are, they have to put their camp right up against the Red Sea to the, to, the, to, the east, <clears throat> to the east. To the west, there's Pharaoh's army with all his chariots and soldiers. To the north is a great uh, Egyptian fortress where you couldn't conquer it and it had a, a, a battalions of soldiers. And then to the south was the place they'd just come from. They couldn't go back. So they were not in a very good position. Militarily, this was really not very good. This was not bright. You put yourself in a position where you cannot win. It's a hopeless position. And yet we see that God led them to that position on purpose. God had a purpose for his people. He had a purpose for taking them to this place. And the purpose was involved in the challenge and the test that he was going to give them at this time as he developed them as his people. God has a purpose for the people here and a purpose for this test. God has a purpose for your life and he has a purpose for the tests that he leads you to, the things that he challenges you with that will help you to grow and be what he wants you to be. God knows what he's doing and he puts them there at this place for a purpose at this time. And he puts tests in our lives for a purpose. The purpose is to grow. The purpose is to learn to trust God. The next mountain peak toward God's purpose for our life will come one at a time. But here he places them and gives it, and he has a purpose for this. And so he puts them in a real pickle. And they, their response, notice what the people said in verses 11 and 12. I wish we could go back to the old days. 
They began to glamorize a past that wasn't nearly as good as they remembered it. They mentioned the food and the fact that they were taken care of. It wasn't long before this they'd groaned and moaned and pleaded with God to rescue them from oppression and from slavery and from the evil taskmasters. We are going to, to die here. And they, so their response was, they saw the dust of Pharaoh's chariots. Somehow they forgot the ten plagues, how God had delivered them from this oppression and how the people had poured out all their silver and gold and sent them on their way. The, the night of their firstborn were saved. Now all they wanted was to return to that same slavery that they'd just been saved from. No, it didn't seem so bad. It's amazing. Is it doesn't make sense to you, probably. It doesn't make sense to me. But do we see that happen today? I've seen people come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and they run into their first trouble, their first challenge, their first test of their faith. And what do they do? They want to go back to where their old life, where they knew what they were, you know, they knew what to expect and where they were comfortable. And so even though they were delivered from sin and forgiven, they would have a temptation to go back to the old life. They had a lot more experience with it. It happens over and over. It's troubling, and yet it happens. We can understand a little of what they did. Sometimes we think the old days is good. It's going to be better than it it really is. I I was in the eighth grade, Eighth grade was really, I mean, that was the old days. But eighth grade, I was there once. And, <coughs> and it was a big deal to be an eighth grader. The school, you, you, it was K through, through eight. So graduating as an eighth grader was a big deal. Graduation was our first graduation. And my dad found he was a construction worker, and he was going to be working in Livermore down in the Bay Area on a project. And we were going to move with him. He wanted us to be with him. And I wasn't real crazy about leaving my friends in the eighth grade when I was a big shot and going down there to all these people I didn't know. But we went, and he promised me that before the end of the year, we would come back and graduate with the class. So I had that to look forward to. I went down, got to know people, went to the eighth grade, and then we moved back, and I could not wait for those people to be so excited to see me. All those people have been waiting on the edge of their seat for me to come back, and they're all going to rush up and hug me and, and, and welcome me back. And it was going to be beautiful. How do you know this story? <laughs> I got back there, and nobody even noticed. I was crushed. But, you know, I was surprised. Things had changed. Things had changed in me. Things had changed there. You can't go back, and yet we think we're going back to some glorious thing, but life has moved on, and we need to go forward. And the people there said, we need to go back. It looked better than it really was, and sometimes we, we do that. We want to come back to where we were. We look back. And one thing I've learned is things in the past are never never what it used to be. We can't go back. We often respond to spiritual challenges with fear. And we want to retreat and escape the challenge. Notice what Moses said in this situation in verses 13 and 14. He said, let's just camp out here and be still. And watch what God will do. Let's just stay put and be still and watch God defeat the enemy. And Moses was right about God and what he would do. Only God could win this battle. Militarily and every other way, there was no way they could win. But he knew that God, who led them there, had a purpose for it. Now, God wouldn't have led them there if he wasn't going to take care of them. Sometimes we need to remember that. God wouldn't have led us to this challenge in our faith if he didn't have the power and the desire to take take care of that challenge. 
But we have a tendency to come up with plans of our own to solve a problem. We try different sources of, for help. We go to the internet. We call a friend. We try to enlist high-powered allies. We try to choose a new leader. We try to send a peace envoy with a white flag to surrender. To arrange surrender. We try to change armies or churches. We buy a book or mobilize our weapons for counterattack. We try all kinds of efforts on our own to deal with the problem that we're facing. The scripture says that they came out of Egypt with many weapons ready for battle, but they knew they couldn't win. They didn't even exercise, but there may have been some groups that would try to mobilize a counterattack. With Egypt's chariots and horses, the hope of military victory was not possible. Two and a half million people in full panic. Can you imagine? I just had three grandchildren in full panic. <laughs> this, is, this is a million. I mean, probably about 600,000 men and then their children and their, and their wives. And then suddenly you see this great cloud of dust and chariots and you see the armies and you see Egypt coming and you panic. And panic spreads through the crowd, and it has a way of, you know, people getting excited and scared, and, 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 and they're afraid. And he says, Moses says, watch what God's going to do for you. Be still. We so frantically run around trying to take care of our problems that we very seldom shut up and be still and listen to what God has to say. You ever notice that? We, are, we try to take care of ourselves. We try to take care of our problems. We try to use our talents. We try to use our imagination. We try to come up with solutions for things that only God can solve. We trust in ourselves. Be still, he said, and watch what the Lord is going to do in delivering you. On uh, 9-11, the churches in Dunsmuir, where I was pastor, had a joint service at the Methodist Church in order to give together and to pray and, and seek God. And I was, had the opportunity to deliver the message that day. And I found a scripture that probably you all know, but it became real to me, and, and I use it as the text for our message. Psalms 20, verse 7 is a valuable, special one to me. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord. In our country, things the way they are, we think we can, economics, politics, military power. Some people trust that to solve the problems. But we should be people who trust in the Lord, who has the true power and control of history and the ability to do things about what's out there. We need to take our eyes off ourselves in the situation and look to God. And that's what Moses challenged the people to do. There's another voice, though. Notice in verse 15 what God said. God basically said, quit praying and get going. Forward march. What are you sitting around for, Moses? The promised land's on the other side of the sea. Quit praying, get going. Now, I'm, I'm all for prayer. I just said that. But my years as a pastor, I often challenge the church or individuals to go out and do something they have never done before and face a new spiritual challenge. I've often heard the words, words, I'll pray about it. You ever heard that? I never heard another word from those folks a lot of times. What they meant was, I don't want to say yes or accept the challenge, uh, I, but I don't want to say no, so I'll pray about it. 
became a way to avoid action. Faith, to me, is a verb, an action word. Faith is doing and moving in a way that God calls us to do. It's not just an idea or a set of beliefs. In my old office, I had a sign that said, don't be afraid to climb out on a limb. That's where the fruit is. Don't be afraid in your Christian life to step out in faith because that's where the victory is. Faith is acting upon the promises and the word of God. A way to grow and accomplish spiritual victory is to climb out on a limb of faith and act upon God's promises. Do you believe in the grace of God and the power to forgive you of your sins and take you to heaven? The people said? Yes. Okay, we got it. Do you believe the same God can give you the power to serve him? Amen. Okay. Do you believe the same God can overcome your problems? Yes. Do you believe the same God can help you overcome an addiction? Yes. Do you believe he can restore a broken relationship? Can he help you raise your children? Yes. Can he help you share your testimony? Yes. Here's a tough one. Can he help you tithe to the church? That's always a quiet one. Yes. Or find a pastor? Yes. yes. All right. Romans 8, 31 to 32 says, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? If God was willing to give up his most precious son to die for us, for our salvation, for eternity, don't you think he's going to take care of the other things in our life? Does he have the power to do that? I mean, if I'm trusting him to take me to heaven forever, I better trust him with my water bill. I just picked that one. Okay. There are a lot of things in their everyday life, God cares about. And if we want to be people of faith walking with him, we need to learn to trust him in faith and act upon our faith by doing what he calls us to do and trusting him. What triggers the power of God in our lives? God is all-powerful. His grace knows no bounds. It is like a giant reactor full of power. To be connected that, but it's not less than it was in this day. It's the same. God is all-powerful, always has been. But in order to have that power real in our lives, there is a conduit, there is a plug, there is a connection needs to be made. And when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, in Jesus and, and God and his will, we are connected to the power and it comes into our lives. There's an acrostic that you probably all know, but it helped me when I learned that to continue remind myself what faith is. Faith is forsaking all. I trust him. That sounds simple, but it's huge. Forsaking all. I trust him. Now, if I'm willing to forsake my own energies, my own gifts, my own talents, my own answers, and turn to him and trust everything in my life to him, I am turning loose the power of God in my life. I'm connecting to that power. And God changes things. God opens up the sea and lets us walk through on dry ground. That's what it said here in 16 to 31. I'm not going to read all that to you, but you remember that Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry ground, and he had, first he'd raised it up the walls of water. Just an amazing thing you want to read that. 
the rest of this chapter. And then he told him to raise his, the, his rod again and, and the sea. Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and their horsemen. A great picture of God's deliverance, his power over what seemed like an impossible foe. When we reach a plateau or a challenge in our life, we are tempted to sit or go back. I was tempted every time we reached a peak with Dad, just, let's just sit here or let's go back. But we can't go forward in our life. We can't become more of what God wants. We can't grow. We can't be what God's purpose is for our life if we sit or go back when we face challenges. And I don't particularly rush out to meet spiritual challenges with open arms. I believe that spiritual trials are given in our lives and how we deal with them will determine our growth and maturity as believers. I know I'm being challenged by God. He challenged me all the way through my life and now that I'm getting older, I have new challenges. I thought we'd wear those things out. We wouldn't need them anymore. But there are new challenges for us as we move into the next areas of our life in living for God. And I believe every church faces repeated challenges to grow and to be what God wants them to be. And as we face the future, we will be challenged by fear. I'm sure there will be those who want to run from the future and live in the past and talk about what we did in the past. Some will glamorize the past and make it the good old days. I've lived a lot of good old days, and they aren't, really weren't that great. The best is still ahead, where God's leading us in our lives. As we face the future, we still will be tempted to use our own resources and ideas to meet the challenges that we face. One of the big enemies of the church and of our individual Christian growth is self-reliance, confidence in ourselves. That's what got us in trouble in the first place. That's what sin was. It's pride and self-confidence instead of God-confidence. We will trust in our own talents, our busyness, our energy to overcome the challenges we face. We will be tempted to face problems again with self-confidence rather than confidence in God. But I think I hear another voice that says, forward march. The voice of God calling us to a life of faith in him. Break camp. Go forward into the future with faith in me. Quit just sitting and praying about what you should do and step out in faith and act upon the promises and the things you know and want you to do, that I want you to do. Maybe as an individual you have been living in the past or clinging to life, hoping that things will change. Faith and victory lies in the future where only God can take you if you'll trust him and act upon his promises. Chapter 15 was a praise service where Moses and the people sang unto the Lord a victory song and a song of thanksgiving. Can you imagine a 600,000 male choir with about 100,000, I mean, uh, about, I don't know, it had to be about a million women and children singing the praises? This was the first recorded song written by Moses, and he led the people. I was talking to Dane. I said, how would you lead a million, you know, two million people choir and out in the wilderness without any sound system? <coughs> And basically, it was a kind of probably a song where Moses would proclaim the, the stanza and the people would respond, and it would be chanted back and forth. But can you imagine the valley, the hillsides being filled with the sound, the roaring sound of the people celebrating the victory that had come by trusting and following God's deliverance through the Red Sea? So in chapter 15, let's see the song, a little bit of the song. 
Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like a stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. Look at those last two verses. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have saved and redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The Israelites came out of Egypt, well armed for battle. They had a great God-called leader, Moses. But in the end, it was the Lord who provided the victory. It was God who won the victory. It was God who delivered them. It was God who sustained them when they followed him in faith. Well, my main desire this morning is to challenge you and me from God's word to trust the Lord with all your hearts and to look to him and his power to guide our lives and to direct our church. There's all kinds of things we can come up with, all kinds of plans and desires and efforts and energy we can pour out. But nothing is more important than raising the Lord and putting him in his position and following him and putting our faith and trust in him, forsaking all other sources of strength and guidance. We put our trust in our Lord, who is all-powerful and capable of meeting our needs. The greatest times of my life have been when I came to the end of me and had only God to trust. You been there? In those days, I discovered the joy of the adventure of faith and experienced the true love and power of God. We need to be happy. We need to be joyful. We serve a God who is alive and powerful and capable and cares about us, loves us, and has the ability to meet our needs and to guide us and help us to grow. It doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean we don't have hills to climb. But we're never alone. We have the God of this world, the God who created us, the God who saved us, the God who promised to walk with us and guide us and empower us to accomplish everything that he has as a purpose for our lives. Like Paul, I haven't arrived. I just, I just keep trying. Press, we need to press on towards the purpose that God has for our lives. And it only gets accomplished if we trust God, trust the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, and trust him to guide our lives. So often we have 
taken over control. I'd like God to get, catch on fire, our church, and just get us so excited by his power and what he can do that we anticipate every day, every week, every new challenge that comes ahead. God's got big things in store. The only thing that limits God's power is our connecting to that power with faith and trust. So the challenge is to trust him. Forsaking all, I trust him is the challenge. Would you stand with me as we go to the Lord in prayer? Heavenly Father, as we stand as a group this morning, you know our lives and you see us as we are. Some of us are facing some tremendous challenges. And we just don't see hope. We don't see how it's going to be, how we can deal with it. And we try everything. Lord, help us to turn to you and put our faith and trust in your power and yield that, be still and let you be in charge of our life and our problem and our challenge. Lord, a lot of us just need to grow. We need to say yes. We need to uh, accept your purpose and your plan and, and step out where we know we can't do it and let you strengthen us and guide us. Lord, we just pray, Father, that even as a church, as we look to the future, I thank you, Lord, that our church lifts you up, your word, and we lift you up, Lord, and you are, it is all about you, God. And we just pray that you will empower us, help us to learn the lessons that the, the people of the Israelites learned. And Lord, and we know they didn't get it all right away. They still had problems, but they made some progress. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for being our God. And Lord, help us to forsake all other efforts for solutions and just come to you and put our faith and trust in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.